Welcome. Welcome to all of you to this event at the London School of Economics and Political Science to host Gordon Brown's launch of his new book, Seven Ways to Change the World, How to Fix the Most Pressing Problems that We Face. Off the back of a year in which we have all coped with this pandemic and countries have attempted to fight this global crisis from national silos, Gordon Brown is the perfect person to remind us how essential it is to practice international cooperation and how to do it well. His book explores the big challenges that we face and provides and shows us how international cooperation is the solution to them. Now, he clearly needs no introduction, so I will be brief. Uh, he served as the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 2007 to 2010 and is widely credited with preventing a second Great Depression through his stewardship of the 2009 London G20 summit in which the world really did come together to address a global challenge. Previously, he served as Chancellor of the Exchequer from 1997 to 2007 and was behind many of the major policy achievements of the time reform of the minimum wage, short start, and the debt cancellation of the world for the world's poorest countries and the tripling of the aid budget. Since then, he has done many things, uh, including his current role as the UN Special Envoy for Global Education, where he works closely to mobilize support to make sure that every child in the world has access to education, a cause to which he has been always devoted. In his book, he looks at the seven global challenges we must address around health, climate change, nuclear proliferation, global financial instability, humanitarian matters, education, inequality, and global taxation. And in it, he reminds us how critical it is that these problems can only be solved by nations working together. So I'm going to ask a few questions uh, to allow him to describe some of the key themes in the book, and then we'll open it up to conversation with the audience. Please feel free to post your questions in the Q&A, and you can also vote for those questions which you're most keen to see answered. But first, welcome, Gordon Brown. Thank you very much. Very good. So in the book, you start with some very big questions about why we have failed on many fronts, why so many lives were lost in the pandemic, why the economic recovery is so uneven, why can't we stop climate change, why can't we collect tax properly. Why do you think we have failed in all of these cases, and in particular, maybe in the context of the pandemic and the recent G7 meeting, why do you think the system isn't delivering what citizens really need? Well, let me say, first of all, Manish, I'm, I'm delighted to be back at uh, the LSE, if only uh, virtually. Uh, delighted, actually, that you're chairing this, because, uh, first of all, I know how busy you are, so thank you for doing this. And secondly, uh, your book, uh, which is just out uh, on the, 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 what we owe to each other, really about uh, national social contracts, is really a superb book that looks at all the national problems that need to be dealt with. And in many ways, what I'm trying is perhaps a very inadequate compliment to your book, which is to look at where international cooperation can work. Now, I first came to write this book more than a year ago when I realized that international cooperation was failing in dealing with 
perhaps the greatest challenge we'd faced in peacetime, which was a pandemic combined with a huge economic dislocation, a huge economic recession. And I just could not understand why, when there was such uh, a necessity for us to work together, you know, this, this disease cannot be solved anywhere unless it's solved everywhere. Uh, countries could just not get together. We, we didn't have an exchange of information. We didn't have honesty about what was happening. We didn't have uh, the stocks of uh, supplies like uh, basic equipment like face masks. We didn't seem to be able to get our act together. And there was vaccine nationalism, medical protectionism. And then as I wrote this book, I realized that all the other issues that we were dealing with uh, were problems that uh, should have been uh, better dealt with by cooperation between countries. Uh, but that was not forthcoming. So there's a huge gap between the need for cooperation and our willingness to do so. And where in the 19th century, countries had realized in the industrialized world that they couldn't solve problems at a local level and had to have national institutions, we somehow had not yet come to the conclusion that there are national problems that cannot be dealt with on their own by a country, no matter how rich and no matter how privileged, no matter how powerful, that you needed international cooperation. And I think that we have to make the case for it. And I think in a way, national politicians will continue to be absorbed in national problems unless we can persuade them that these national problems need global, global solutions. So come to the vaccination uh, effort now. And so I was very hopeful that we'd get to the G7 a few weeks ago, being held in Britain, the richest countries in the world, many people like yourself contributing to the agenda, uh, that we could actually get uh, to some agreement that the basic problem of vaccination, that we had to fund the mass vaccination of the world, could be agreed, and nowhere better than the richest countries of the world coming together. And we had uh, an organization, ACT-A, which was, which was organizing uh, this. We had COVAX, which was there to distribute the vaccines and basically had a, a global organization. We had a plan from Norway and South Africa uh, for the burden sharing of this. And then what we had was a generous offer to share doses, about 780 million, I think. Uh, but there are 11 billion uh, doses that have got to be provided in the next year. And we couldn't get an agreement. Or we didn't try to get an agreement to fund that so that you could guarantee that the poorest countries in the world were funded. So we've got to do better than that. It's willpower. It's institutional frameworks that are not right for making decisions. Even yesterday, you had the IMF, the World Bank, the WTO, and the uh, WHO, the health organization, saying this was a moral failure at the G7. We've got to do far better. So I think we are being tested over the next few months. Can global cooperation on an issue where it's obvious that global cooperation has got to take place, can it be effective? Because at the moment, as many people will know who are listening to this, maybe 70% of Britain has had its first vaccination, 60% of America, average 24% around the world, but only 1% in Africa, 1% in the low-income countries. Now, that cannot continue. It's an economic disaster. It's an epidemiological disaster because the disease will continue to spread and mutate, and it's an ethical disaster. You cannot have one world where half of it's going to be vaccinated and half of it's going to be unprotected and at risk of dying. And that, that is not the way forward. So we've got to do something about it. And why, I mean, you, you make such a, an eloquent case for why it should have been agreed. Why do you think political leaders who've expended so much 
to protect their populations and their economies at the national level to cope with the pandemic, failed to put together funds which are frankly rounding error in the wider context. Yeah, 50 billion uh, uh, in total, which is what about 30 pence per person in Britain uh, just yeah. to cover the whole of the world. I mean, uh, and that's something that could, could have been done quite easy. Why? <laughs> I tell the story in the book about some of the meetings I've been at. You know, the G7 and these G20, I mean, they can be really informal because there's not a set executive or secretariat or agenda. It depends on who's chairing the meeting, so they can be very informal. Uh, and therefore, you, you may not get things done. But of course, the advantage is you have the leaders around the table and they can make a bold decision. Now, why didn't they? I think they thought that the world would think they were generous enough if they gave a few of the extra vaccines that they had. But what we actually needed was a plan to vaccinate the world. So you put up the funding, then you enhance the manufacturing capacity. It then tr transfers into all sorts of continents so that uh, you can have capacity right across the world. And you've got a continuous supply then of, 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 of vaccines. You needed to create a virtuous circle, but it starts with putting up the money as Britain did in the first place for Britain's vaccinations by Britain funding it. You know, look, you, you can, I mean, I was, I tell the story in the book about the financial crisis 2008. We had this, uh, we had this uh, urgent meeting in Paris with the uh, French, the Germans, the Italians and everybody else, Chancellor Merkel, Sarkozy and so on. And I tell the story about how we were trying to get to the bottom of what was actually happening to the world financial system. And we had this meeting and nobody had any answers really at the beginning. And we were trying to find our way towards a solution. And then suddenly, uh, <laughs> halfway through the meeting, as we had a coffee break, I had Berlusconi saying to someone, amateurs, amateurs, he said, they're all amateurs, he was saying in French. And we thought, well, Berlusconi, businessman, politician, he's got the answer. So someone has actually worked out how to deal with these financial issues. And then suddenly you heard them say, amateurs, they don't they realize we've got a press conference in the next hour and none of them have brought a makeup artist with them. And <laughs> so, so you, 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 you can talk about uh, politicians not being up to the, the task of dealing with the problem, but I think there is a structural problem as well. And I think the structural problem is we haven't yet created the international institutions in a way that they can actually uh, be either charged with dealing the with the problem or they, there is the leadership uh, coming from the, the national politicians to make sure that the problem is dealt with. Now, you could put this in charge of the IMF or the World Bank or the WTO or the WHO, or you can say that as these more likely at the gathering of international leaders, they should be in a position to make big decisions and not just uh, put out press releases or congratulate themselves on their, on their makeup. <laughs> so in the book, you also talk about another topic, corporate taxation and tax havens, yeah. which you worked for many years and on which there was some progress recently uh, at the OECD. Does that make you a bit more optimistic about international cooperation or not? Yes, it does make me a bit more optimistic because, look, in 2009, when we had the G20 meeting in London to deal with the uh, financial crisis, the one issue that was a completely divisive and where it was really difficult to make progress was actually on taxation. Mm -hmm. And the French had come along, supported by us, with a proposal to isolate these tax havens, to, to, to force them into really compliance. And we had a, 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 a black, grey, white list. Uh, and so if you were on the black list, you, you were going to be isolated from the world community. Uh, but surprisingly, and this was really surprising, the, the country that was refusing to allow the G20 to deal with this was China. 
And they were trying to protect their tax haven at the time, which was Macau, which is basically a gambling uh, uh, operation. They've now cleaned it up, I think, to a large extent, at least uh, to some extent. But they said the G20, and this was the first meeting we'd had of leaders, it couldn't discuss this because it was outside the agenda. The agenda was the economic crisis, and they were only going to discuss that. And Sarkozy threatened to walk out if he didn't get his tax proposal on the agenda. The Chinese threatened to walk out if they they were forced to discuss it. And eventually, uh, we arranged a compromise where the OECD in Paris, which is the sort of organization of uh, some of the advanced economies, uh, they put out a statement saying that uh, we are agreed to deal with this problem. And since then, of course, the OECD has done the work that has led to uh, what, what has happened. Now, at that point, we wanted the exchange of tax information between different countries. And America actually was a problem here as well, because it was wanting to protect Delaware and all these other uh, tax uh, uh, shelters. Uh, over the last 12 years, it's become obvious that the scale of the abuse is so big that action had to be taken now. What, what's done the 15% minimum corporation tax rate is, uh, is um, something that uh, is not enough in my view because it will still mean that people will go to tax, ha- tax havens. I, I think you know Britain's rate is going to be 26%. America's putting its rate up um, uh, to, uh, to, uh, and Biden wanted a 21% rate. So I don't think the rate's high enough and I think tax havens will find a way to, 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 to get through this. I think there's a lot of exemptions that have got to be looked at very carefully. Uh, I, I mean, there was one that allowed Amazon, which is one of the biggest, of course, um, uh, corporates in the world, uh, to have um, uh, pretty much uh, to be shielded from this. So I think there's a lot in the small print that is yet to be dealt with. Basically, what you're wanting is people are taxed at the place of activity. And there are still too many loopholes that allow people to use nameplate uh, companies in tax uh, shelters. Uh, to, to escape the tax. So there's been progress, the principles accepted, that's really important. I mean, the first time a global minimum corporate tax mm-hmm. rate, but of course there will be disillusionment if the amount of income that comes in is so low uh, because either the rate is too low or the exemptions are too low. Okay. I, I think so we've got progress, uh, but we've still got a lot to do. So let me turn to another theme in the book where you talk about one world, two systems and how we might avoid another Cold War between the US and China. Clearly, the two key powers who will shape and dominate the international system and whether they cooperate or not will determine whether the international system is truly global and collaborative. How can we avoid another Cold War? I think we've got to look at what is the basis for cooperation. You're not going to get agreement on everything. Uh, There are major disputes, and I'll come to one or two in a minute. Uh, but you've got to find areas where you can cooperate. Uh, otherwise, the whole system will break down. This is not the same as the Cold War of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and, and so on. Uh, the ideological differences are smaller, in my view. The contact that was actually cut off from Russia uh, or the Eastern Europe with the rest of the world in the, after the 1940s, uh, you know, Chinese students are coming to British universities, American universities, the contact is, is, is very broad and, 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 and I hope can, can, can continue. So it's not exactly the same, but there are big issues. You know, when we were in power in 2008, we had this huge issue over the Dalai Lama actually visiting um, the United Kingdom. And I, I agreed I would meet him as a religious uh, leader. Uh, and I met him with the Archbishop of Canterbury in, in, the, you know, in, in the church premises at uh, Lambeth Palace. I was then criticized by the conservatives and liberals 
because they said we should have met him in Downing Street and recognized he was a political leader as well. But just for meeting him as a, 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 for what he is essentially a religious leader, um, we, we were cut off and China cut off diplomatic relations for months. Uh, and at one point, I think uh, about nine, nine months later, Chinese government said things are looking a little better. <laughs> and that was uh, how it was broken. When the conservatives and liberals did it, and I, I think they were, uh, they went, uh, they, they, you know, they, they wanted to go further. Uh, they were cut off for a lot longer and, and they couldn't get relations re-established. So what you have is China digging in on issues uh, which where we disagree with them fundamentally, human rights, uh, the future of Hong Kong, what's happening to Tibet, what's happening to the religious minorities in China. We had a dialogue with China. You know, we had a human rights dialogue, and it seems not to be taking place at the moment. And I still think you've got to continue to talk to try and make progress on these issues. So my argument, and I think Biden is probably one who accepts this, that even if there are major issues of disagreement for the sake of dealing with climate change, international tax reform, financial stability, economic growth, uh, I think it's very important that we maintain uh, uh, discussions where we can, uh, always uh, with the understanding that we will disagree fundamentally on other issues. So the, 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 question, the question is, for the future, uh, can we find a basis on which uh, people can continue to work together and a dialogue can continue? I don't think it's easy, but I think it's uh, necessary. Okay. Maybe we've got lots of questions coming in from the audience, so I'll just do one more question for me. The book is full of practical solutions and a clear way through some of these challenges if we could just get the world to collaborate. And in terms of the politics of this, you put quite a lot of weight on the importance of social movements in pressing politicians to act. Movements like Black Lives Matter, Greenpeace and Extinction Rebellion, the Me Too movement. Do you think social movements are the key to political progress on international cooperation? Or do you also think we need to we need new institutions or to change our existing institutions? What where will the where will the politics of this enhanced global cooperation come from? Yeah, I write about social movements in the last chapter because I do feel that the pressure for change on the environment has come from young people. Uh, I think it's come from people outside the political system, first of all, who recognize the importance of environmental issues. I think Black Lives Matter has made a huge difference. And whatever the disagreements are on individual policy issues, I think it's changed the way our culture, our music, our, our sport is, is dealing with issues of race. So I think these movements are incredibly important. And I suppose what I'm saying is uh, the, the, the social movements will continue to be effective in pressing for political action. But we also need uh, reform of institutions to make them work better. You see, if you take one issue just as an example, there are 80 million displaced people around the world, 25 million refugees, bigger than at any time since the aftermath of the Second World War. A uh, huge number of conflicts, obviously, environmental damage, uh, civil wars, all these things are making this population uh, very, very large. But the institutions that are dealing with this, we've got the UNHCR, which is, uh, we've got OCHA, we've got all these great UN organizations, but they've got no money. And then we've got the World Bank, which you know more about than I do. And it's got a remit generally to abolish poverty, but not a specific remit for humanitarian aid in the way that the UN agencies have. But it's got the ability to raise money. Now, I can't see how the World Bank and the United Nations organizations should not be working far more closely. For at the moment, a UN appeal will go out this year for about 35 billion. 
at best, half of it will be raised. Spread amongst uh, displaced people, it's maybe about $4 a week or something. It's not enough for health, education, as well as food and shelter. And we're approaching the issue of humanitarian aid. And yet the sustainable development goals are telling us we've got to abolish poverty. We will never do it if we can't do something for these 80, 80 million people who are displaced. And we need a far better institutional framework for doing so. You need an organization that's got the remit with resources and not an organization with the remit and no resources and then organizations with resources, but not the remit. The international community has got to work better. Yeah. I think there's a huge difference between those international organizations that have to pass around a begging bowl on a regular basis and those that have a balance sheet and are capitalized and able to raise their own funds. And it's no coincidence that the more effective ones are the ones who have their own balance sheets and can raise their own money. And, and you were very effective in, in working in, in the Bretton Woods organizations. I mean, when we proposed an answer for vaccination, what we were actually were proposing was stop the begging bowl mentality, stop just having to call a, a, a conference uh, because of a crisis and ask people to put around the begging bowl, ask people like a charity fundraiser uh, to give as much as they can and then saying, well, that's all we can get. What we needed was a burden sharing formula like we do for UN peacekeeping, like we did actually when we tried to eliminate smallpox in the 1960s. And you say to each country on the basis of your income, your capacity to pay, uh, the benefits you will get from opening up the world economy you pay this and others pay that. And Britain would make 5%, America 25%, Europe maybe 20-something percent. And you would get to a figure that the Norwegians and South Africans were proposing before the G7, where you had you had a burden-sharing formula that guaranteed you'd get the money, or at least guaranteed you had the best chance of getting the money. But we are still approaching this issue of vaccination. You know, it's, it's the biggest <laughs> sort of moral uh, problem. You know, if you, if you leave half or two-thirds of the world unvaccinated, what sort of society are you going to build for the future? And we're still approaching it with this begging bowl mentality. And you're absolutely right. We need to have a, a more structured approach to this and, and, and the burden-sharing formula. I think, I hope, will still be agreed at the G20 in October. Yes, yes. We do get another bite at this cherry. <laughs> yes. so. I hope you'll be able to contribute uh, as you have. <laughs> well, all of us. We'll all... We'll yeah. all pressure, put pressure that we can. Let me turn to some of the questions from the audience. Um, so the first one is from Doris Lau Perry, who asks, slightly off, off the topic, but I'm sure there'll be lots of interest in your answer. What does the current, what should the late, current Labour Party do to provide a vision for Brit the Britain of tomorrow? And what should Keir Starmer prioritise to get elected in the next general election? Is he the right man for the job as the leader of New Labour? Yeah, and I think, I think this is what Keir wants to do. Look, I think you've got to understand where we've been in the last year. We've had a pandemic. He hasn't been able to get out into the country. Uh, people have been obviously interested in the detail, as they are today, about uh, what happens when the lockdown ends. And what is his attitude? What is the opposition going to say as well as the government about what needs to be done? And we've been involved in these detailed questions about lockdowns, quarantines, about um, how much is being spent on this and that and how quickly the vaccine goes and to whom. And he cannot avoid these questions. He's had to deal with them every week in, 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 in Parliament. Now, I think the chance will come to put forward this uh, vision of the, of the future, which is, which is basically people want to come out of this pandemic and build back, as people say, better. In other words, they don't want to return to the status quo. And I think your book, your own book on the social contracts shows why no country can return to the old status quo because it's broken. Uh, but also, I mean, what has changed? Nobody now says you can't buck the market. Remember these phrases in the 1980s, that mm. market forces will determine everything. 
Mm. Nobody says that now. You know, the government's become the investor, the employer, the market maker of last resort. Nobody's now saying there's no such thing as society anymore. So people are understanding that we're part of an interdependent uh, 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 community where we've got to act together and where we benefit from uh, the ties that bind us uh, and uh, what we owe to each other is, is the title of your book. Uh, and so I think people are understanding there's a sea change in the way we're going to deal with economic issues. I don't think neoliberalism can come back. Where we deal with social issues, I think people understand now the importance of a social contract. It can never be everybody just for themselves. The balance between risk and security in our society is changing. People will not be prepared to accept the risks that the dot-com economy involved with self-employed people on zero-hour contracts with no protection when the, when the pandemic came along. So there's going to be big changes. Now, in the next year, I, I will uh, bet you that Keir Starmer will come out with the policies that will actually be Labour's answer to some of these uh, diff difficult issues. Now, of course, we're dealing also with culture wars, and uh, that's another issue that we might uh, talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think at the end of the day, people are worried about their economic security. I think they're worried that um, the National Health Service and other social institutions are not going to have the finances uh, to deliver. And I think people are worried about issues like social care, where we left neglected large numbers of elderly people as if um, uh, they didn't count as much as they should. And I think all these issues will be addressed. So, uh, you know, you've got to give uh, someone who started only a few months uh, and right at the time the pandemic got underway having to deal with that. Now, I think you can start to say, what is the Britain we're going to build for the future? What is the world we're going to build for the future? Okay. Let me turn to uh, the next question from John Vlasto. What's the chance of creating a nascent parliamentary body at the UN, such as the proposal for a parliamentary assembly created under Article 22 of the Charter without the need for charter reform? Starting as an imperfect body, but one which we could create today, develop over time, similar to the evolution of the European Parliament. I think that's really interesting. Uh, the, the European Parliament has got its critics as well as its uh, mm. supporters, of course. Uh, and how effective it is is, is is continuously an issue that is raised, not just in Britain, of course, with Brexit, but also uh, right across the continent. You know, I've been involved in many United Nations organizations. And, and, and obviously, uh, you've got the Security Council itself in need of reform. You've got ECOSOC, which is the Economic and Social Organization, which has not got the, uh, if you like, the, 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 the sway uh, that the IMF and the World Bank have, and yet it's a governmental uh, body. Uh, that should be more effective. And then you've got the UN General Assembly, which is the, the meeting of the countries every year, uh, as well as the continuous uh, in-session uh, organization. Do you and can you cope with uh, another organization that is basically parliamentarians around the world? I mean, you're going to have to look in the future at, 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 at better ways of managing the existing organizations of the UN, like reform of the Security Council, I think you're going to ha have to look at how you elect your major UN officials so that people feel some responsibility and, and there is a greater accountability for them. Uh, and yes, I think you do need parliamentarians to be involved. Now, the exact structure of that, I have not uh, uh, worked through. You know, when the UN started, there were all these UN associations in every country because, you know, Britain actually, and Attlee, who was the prime minister at the time, I mean, he wanted um, arms control issues and all the other issues that eventually became part of NATO. He wanted them dealt with by the UN. So we've got a long way to go to get the UN to become an effective, uh, a more effective organization. And, and, and bringing in parliamentarians from around the world is one aspect of it, I agree. Okay. 
Right. Another question from David Wood, who's the chair of London Futurists. What is more likely to relieve the current bottleneck in collaborative actions? A change in the legal structure of international bodies, a better shared understanding of the gravity of the threats we're collectively facing, or the emergence of a truly inspiring individual leader who can inspire a greater spirit of cooperation? Well, and perhaps you could volunteer for that latter role. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I'd volunteer. Uh, you've got more experience of working with the... the, the um, what the problem, of course, is, is not simply leaders uh, who are, if you like, uh, unwilling to see beyond national frontiers and, the, and, and see that the problems they face are not national problems, but global problems that need global solutions. Uh, but what we've also got is the rise of nationalism. And we've got a very different form of nationalism. And if I was saying the one thing that we've got to deal with, first of all, is to make a distinction between patriotism and nationalism. And because what's happened around the world is you've got America first, India first, China first, Russia first, Turkey first. You go to most countries, Hungary first. You know, uh, the leaders uh, are, are suggesting that they um, just do things on their own, like Trump himself uh, made a philosophy of America first and only. And I think we've got to deal with this rise of a nationalist uh, set of nationalist movements across Europe in particular, but, but right across the world. Uh, and the, f the first stage, I think, is to expose the difference between a healthy patriotism, which is people's love of their country, a positive view about your institutions, your future, your history, your traditions, and separate that out from nationalism, which is an us versus them ideology. If you look at George Orwell in his original article on this in 1944, I mean, he is making this distinction between the positive and the negative. And nationalism uh, in its present form, and we've seen it rise over the last 10 years. I mean, you know, tariffs, immigration controls, border controls, building of walls, there's now 66 walls between countries, and then the America First movements, which led to the vaccine nationalism and the medical protectionism. And we've got to somehow persuade people that in the modern world, the idea of creating an us versus them ideology, uh, creating enemies even where they don't exist, inventing them uh, for the sake of uh, building political platforms uh, and, of course, building resentments that are either imaginary and certainly not in most cases real, that this is not the way forward. So of all the measures that uh, were suggested in the question, I think you've got to start by saying we've all got a duty to say uh, patriotism, yes, nationalism. We must find a way of saying there is no way forward in the modern world. You know, John F. Kennedy, 1962 speech in Philadelphia, where the founding fathers had um, the founding of the Constitution in America in the 1770s, he said America had to move from its declaration of independence to a declaration of interdependence. And that was a massive statement against nationalist ideologies. And I think we've really got to deal with that in the first instance. Can I ask you, you, you mentioned the culture wars earlier. Could you talk a little bit about the intersection between the rise of nationalist populism and the role of the culture wars in fueling that and how one can resist yeah. that phenomenon. Remember that poster in 2016 uh, at the height of the controversies in the referendum, and it was actually the day that uh, Joe Cox was tragically assassinated five years ago. Mm -hmm. And there was that poster appeared, and it was called Breaking Point, and uh, Nigel Farage uh, put it up. And it, it, it's a poster, if you remember, which was a photograph, a real photograph, but a doctored photograph, of, of a horde of people apparently coming in uh, to our country. Of course, it was taken in Eastern Europe. 
they blanked out all women in the photograph, all children, and it was a horde of bearded people as if they were a threat to, to, to our country. And it was called Breaking Point. And then that poster, which was reviled in Britain, and people like Michael Gold disowned it, uh, that poster reappeared in Hungary. And it reappeared in the Hungarian elections as stop under, not breaking point, stop, exactly the same photograph, exactly the same idea. And this was the whipping up of an anti-immigrant uh, uh, xenophobia in a country, Hungary, where only 6% of the population were born outside the country. And whereas someone wrote, there were more anti-immigrant parties now than there were immigrants. <laughs> because Hungary was being told by the leader, Orban, that the biggest threat to Hungary's identity was coming from uh, immigration, which was, was not true. There, there was simply very little immigration into, into Hungary. Then the poster, I gather, reappeared in Spain with Vox Party at their elections. And what you've got is this uh, manipulation of um, people's fears. Uh, and, and, and culture wars are basically telling people to be afraid of something that is usually exaggerated out of all proportion. Uh, and you divide the country on the basis of whether you're in favor of this thing happening as against that. And so you can make it about statues, you can make it about photographs of the Queen, you can make it about all sorts of uh, symbols, like Rule Britannia being sung at the proms and everything else. <laughs> and of course, it's a tactic to, to divide the country on the basis of are you in favor of tradition or are, 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 you, are you against it? But of course, it is manipulated by anti-immigrant xenophobes, um, uh, particularly, of course, uh, protectionist movements in different parts of, parts of, parts of Europe. Uh, and, and, and of course, it's a diversion from the economic problems that people face. If you were to ask people, is the problem in your life um, that uh, the Queen's uh, uh, photograph has been taken down at Magdalen College, Oxford, or that a statue has been removed in, in, in Bristol, or that they're not going to sing at the, the last night of the proms, uh, Rule, Rule Britannia. And of course, everybody would agree it's not. But of course, culture wars exaggerate this problem uh, and make it the issue that is defining uh, your identity and, and whether you're for or against a particular party uh, always. And, and that's a real danger that we face, and we've got to, we've got to fight it. Yeah. And you don't, you don't sort of fight culture wars to the finish. You end them. You try to get rid of them, and not by ignoring the problem, but by saying, look, what is the real problem we're dealing with? And it's often economic insecurity. Yeah. Often it's a diversionary tactic to not talk about the real issues as well, yeah, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. So the next question is from John Newham, who's a London University graduate, who asks, how big an obstacle is Brexit to Britain's contribution to international cooperation? You know, I've been surprised because I've done this book on global problems and uh, I've spoken a lot on Europe in the last few years. And I think everybody knows my views that I want to, wanted to stay in, in, in Europe. And, and this question, which I don't address in the book because I, I, I'm talking about global issues, um, it, it comes back uh, and of course it's a, it's a real question and it worries me. And coming from Scotland as I do and living in Scotland, I mean, I, I uh, cannot uh, adjust and say that I'm happy about um, a world where we were, are no longer going to be part of the European Union. I would prefer to be inside the European Union. I prefer to be back in the European Union. I know that that's not possible in the short term, but I think what we've got to do is to build the best possible relationships with Europe. You know, I, I, I've been doing things in Ireland in the last week, and I can just see the damage that is being done uh, mm. because uh, people are, are making it a choice. I mean, Britain or Europe. And uh, what we've got to do is find a basis in which we can actually live with Europe uh, and the United Kingdom can, can hold together. So this is a huge, uh, huge challenge. Brexit, I think, we'll find is economically not to our benefit. I mean, how could 
the reduction of trade be to your benefit because it's basically causing a reduction in trade and therefore it's not to our benefit. Uh, and I think over time, some of the, um, the communications uh, and, and, and cooperation we have with the European Union, I suspect it was more difficult at the G7 to get agreements because we, we don't can, cannot automatically call on the rest of the European Union to support Britain now. And I think these will be issues on the global stage that makes it more difficult for us as well. I, you know, I can't see a British candidate being approved for, say, the head of the IMF or other organisations now because it will need the support of other European countries and that's not going to happen. So on a whole series of different levels, the economic trade, obviously, um, general contact like Erasmus, which I regret the passing of Erasmus, which was a joint sort of operation in training young people, uh, European Investment Bank, the infrastructure development in the UK, we're, we're losing. Uh, but but obviously, I think for the future, what you've got to say is let us try and build constructive and more positive relationships with, uh, with European countries. Okay. The next question is from Jamie Rankmore, who's a 16-year-old in Islington, who asks, Mr. Brown, do you still believe the United Nations to be an effective mediator in international diplomacy, or is it underpowered? What reforms would be needed of organizations like the UN or EU to make them a greater force for peace? Well, the United Nations is, is underpowered. I mean, because it doesn't have the finance, it doesn't have the resources, it doesn't have the support that's necessary to do all the things it wants to do. And, you know, Antonio Guterres is a very good man, just been re-elected as uh, uh, Secretary General of the United Nations. He's um, uh, he pledged, as you know, he, his big aim is to be the conciliator, the peacemaker, but he does need the resources uh, to, to, to do so. And right from the beginning of the United Nations, uh, we've under-resourced an organization that is absolutely vital. So on peacekeeping, you know, we probably raise about seven or eight billion a year for peacekeeping, but that's a very small amount spread across 194 countries. Uh, we don't actually do the same in humanitarian aid as we've discussed, so we rely on the begging bowl. So the actual financing of the United Nations is, is, is very limited. You know, to make it a more effective body, We've got to give it greater resources. And, and, and also then you could actually ask it to do more things. I mean, if you look at the digital issues arising in cyberspace and all these issues, if you look at the tax issue, probably it would have been better dealt with by the United Nations because the OECD, which is dealing with it, doesn't include the developing countries. It only includes a certain number of countries. Uh, but of course, the resources are not available. So yes, I think we need to resource the United Nations. I don't think it's a lack of willpower on the part of many of the leaders of the United Nations. It's the fact that they, we have not properly resourced it. Mm. So the next question is from our Facebook audience. Uh, it's from Will Worley, who's the UK correspondent at DevEx. And he asks, if you were reorganize, reorganizing the FCDO, uh, Foreign and Commonwealth and Development Office, from scratch, what would you focus its development activity on? Look, you've got to have a separate Department of International Development these days. I mean, Manoush is better able to... I used to be the permanent secretary, so I... I run the department, so she knows. I mean, the role of the Foreign Office is, of course, mainly diplomacy. The role of the International Development Department was development. And development is you've got to act quickly, you've got to deal with financial issues, you've got to be open, transparent, uh, you've got to tell people what you're doing. Foreign office is a bit different. Diplomacy is often behind the scenes. It's often uh, not not ex expressed in sort of big public statements and everything and everything else. It's a different it's a different way of dealing with things. I mean, we want a development department that when there's a crisis is immediately there. We want a development department that's got a long term strategy 
uh, for involving ourselves with other countries in dealing with poverty. So, you, I, I mean, I think the case for a separate development partner is very strong. But also, I cannot approve of the idea that you create a new department, uh, the FCDO, uh, you don't have a minister for international development, you've simply got the foreign secretary, and then you cut the budget by four billion. I mean, this is the biggest and most savage cut in development aid that has ever been made in British history. And we didn't have to do it at other times, but yet we've done it now. And it's as bad as pulling away the needle from a child who's in need of the life-saving injection to deal with either polio or ma malaria or tuberculosis and all these things. And it's as bad as telling kids at school that we're taking away your school meals. It's as bad as shutting the gates of schools so that kids don't get education, because that's the effect of it. Many more millions of children in poverty, lacking education, lacking health care and treatment. And so, uh, yes, we can concentrate on the dynamics of uh, who does what within government and the department. But I think we should also look at this basic question that I know there's an all party consensus developing that this was the wrong decision. It's got to be changed. Uh, and whatever they did to deal with an emergency was not the way of dealing with the biggest crisis in development that is faced in the poorest countries in the world because they are besieged by COVID and they have not got the resources to deal with it. Yeah. And of course, the beauty of the 0.7 target when it was agreed is that it adjusts automatically to difficult heart economic times. You don't have to slash it because yeah, when, the, when growth is lower, the aid budget yeah. falls automatically. So. Yeah, automatically the aid budget would have fallen because Britain was, was, had negative growth. I mean, but when we came into power in 1997, it was 0.29%. And we pushed it up year after year after year to 0.7, which was reached, I think, the year after we left, uh, left power. Uh, and to, to cut it, having made this huge national effort that won us prestige around the world, that made Britain a leader. If you're talking about global Britain, global Britain was leadership in international development. And to lose that, which is what we're in danger of doing, is, is a tragedy for our country, particularly uh, when we're looking to the international institutions uh, because we're not part of the European Union anymore. So the next question is from Reza Ali, who asks, with the global agreement on taxation agreed a few weeks ago, could we perhaps embark on a Marshall Plan for the pandemic to deal with the global vaccination problem that exists? Well, in my book, I put forward a plan on taxation that I think would have raised three quarters of a trillion dollars. So I, I actually believe the rate should be over 20%. I think if Britain's going to have a rate of 25 or 26%, there's no reason why the world shouldn't have a rate that's similar to America and Britain. And therefore, you would have no need for tax havens. Um, uh, so the question then is, uh, can, can you raise the sort of money that's necessary? I think yes. Uh, the IMF plan and the Norway plan was 50 billion, which was a fraction of the, 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 the three quarters of a trillion I'm talking about. Remember, we've also got an issue of special drawing rights, which is the global currency, if you like, issued by the United Nations. It lent to all the countries who are members of, issued by the IMF uh, to all countries who are members of it. And so Britain will get 23 billion from that alone. Uh, it, over the next few months. So there's no reason why we can't raise the money that's necessary to pay for the um, uh, vaccine program. It, you know, Biden spent two trillion on his latest fiscal stimulus, uh, 50 billion, it, what is a 2% of that? It, it's just a fraction of what, 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 what is being spent by America on its own domestic uh, effort. And it would be repaid many, many times over because the survey done by Save the Children Kevin Watkins and Christy, Christy, Christy O'Neill did this, uh, showed that uh, 
30 times over. So if Britain spent uh, what was going to be about four or five billion on this, it would get about um, 100 billion uh, back. Let me turn to a question on climate change from Sruthi Suresh. Do you believe that all countries should curtail their emissions equally? Developing countries such as China and India create survival emissions compared to developed countries like the UK and the US. No, I think you've got to look at historic emissions as well. I mean, there's no doubt that the West is responsible for the historic uh, uh, creation of, of emissions. And there's no doubt now, of course, that China and India are creating more emissions because of their industrial development. Uh, so I think the, the, the historic uh, polluters have got, to, have got to pay more. And of course, that was the basis of Kyoto. It was the basis of uh, what we tried at Copenhagen, what happened in Paris, nationally determined commitments. Now, the problem with that is not that we don't recognize that poorer countries uh, uh, should um, have to be helped uh, to deal with the burden that they face. The problem with that is that no country is under an obligation to deliver. They're under a moral obligation, but not a legal obligation. And so no country at the moment is meeting the targets that we set. So we set the, the parameters in which we operate at a global level, uh, but we're relying on what we call the ratcheting up effect. We're not telling countries, this is what you've got to do. And if you don't do it, you're going to be penalized in some way. We're saying, you know, please, please do this. And that's not going to be enough. We're, we're going to have to have a ratcheting up of commitments. And my worry about climate change at the moment is everybody is committing themselves to a 2050 net carbon zero target, China 2060. So countries are prepared to make these long-term commitments. Now, that's a recognition we have a problem. But what they're not prepared to do is to take the immediate action that is necessary. And so what's going to happen is between 2020 and 2030, despite COP26 and all the efforts being made there, the problems with carbon emissions are, continue to, are going to continue to be very substantial and we're not going to be on course to meet the 2050 target. We've got, in fact, to take action now. And therefore, I think COP26 has got to see a number of things, a ratcheting up of the national commitments. I think it's got to see companies uh, disclosing their carbon footprints. So I think you're going to need laws to force the disclosure of carbon footprints. Uh, I think you obviously need to do the Green New Deal, which Europe is pioneering, and I think that's a job creator. Remember, the argument for climate change now, action now, is it's an opportunity. It's not, it's not saying you've got to take action now to protect the long term only. It's saying we've got an opportunity now to invest in new technologies and in the environment in a way that will actually be uh, productive to the economy over the next few years. And then, of course, we've got to apply technology. We've got to help the poorest countries. All these things are going to be done at COP26. So the IMF recently came out with a proposal for a minimum global carbon price, a minimum global carbon tax. Uh, do you think that's a good idea? Well, of course, it's a great idea. It, the question is, can you persuade can people to do it? it? Particularly since America has already uh, ruled it out. And, and so you're going you're gonna to have a, an issue in the next few weeks, I think, when you've got this carbon border adjustment mechanism coming out of Europe which is effectively a tax on carbon entering, uh, entering uh, Europe. Perhaps America will do that as well. But the logic, of course, is you've got to have a carbon tax to do with the domestic side as well. So over time, we need to move to a carbon price and a carbon, uh, which will eventually, I think, lead to a carbon tax. Now, you can deal with the regressive parts of that because you could transfer the income you raise from the carbon tax to the poorest people in your community. So, uh, yes, if you take no other action, it could hurt people who... Uh, you know, are poor most, but by taking the action and then making sure there's a redistributive element in this, we could actually protect people who are most at risk. Okay, and now a question from 
Ian Sheridan, who's a lawyer in London and an LSE alumnus. How can cooperation succeed when some authoritarian governments place a priority on domestic control over international cooperation? Well, I think most governments uh, will be accused of putting domestic issues first. And what I'm trying to talk about is not saying, you know, ignore your domestic issues. What I'm saying is see the importance of what you say is a domestic issue uh, to what is happening globally. And you'll find that many of the problems you're describing as national problems are actually global problems. So how can you deal with the loss of tax revenues without an international solution to deal with the tax havens that are absorbing and siphoning off all, all the money? How can you deal with climate change if there are free riders and you've got no way of dealing with this as an international uh, problem? How can you deal with financial stability when you've got multinational um, institutions that are of a financial nature uh, that if they don't find, if we don't find a way of supervising them, we can actually deal with it? So. I, I'm not actually asking countries to, to, to discard national uh, and domestic issues, but to recognize that, 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 that there is a global dimension to them. But also, I think what we've got to think about is how do you get the right balance between national autonomy and international cooperation? It's almost as, as much autonomy as is possible, as much cooperation as we need. Nobody's trying to sort of, uh, if you like, uh, delegitimize uh, national governments. But what we are trying to do is to get a balance between the national uh, autonomy that they desire and the international cooperation we need. Now, I think there are many ways of doing this. You can look at the problems and how they're addressed in each individual area. As I do, you can look at the international institutions and see whether people would be prepared to give them more responsibility to deal with individual problems. But I think it's the balance between the two that matters. Once you recognize that you want a patriotism that is devoid of nationalism, it is possible to talk about a good relationship between, if you like, national um, governments and international institutions. So in the book, you show very clearly how international cooperation is so often in the national interest, even in the narrowest definition of national interest. The, the numbers really are very compelling. But you actually ask for more international cooperation than that uh, in terms of humanitarian response and longer-term development and poverty reduction. How do you make the political case at the national level for that extra effort? Yeah, I see. I agree when we're talking about vaccination. I'm actually talking about, yes, an altruistic, a moral effort on the part of the whole international community to help each other. But I'm also talking about enlightened self-interest. So I'm, I'm saying that if we don't uh, vaccinate other people, it's going to come back to, to, to hit us. So at all times, you're talking about enlightened self-interest, but you're also, I think you're introducing an idea of empathy. You know, Adam Smith, uh, uh, who came from the same town where I was brought up and went to school and uh, always thought that the theory of moral sentiments was a more important book than the wealth of nations. Mm. He talked about this circle of sympathy. He called it sympathy. We would now call it empathy, I think which started with uh, the, the loyalties you owe to your, um, your, your family, family. Yeah. and then your neighborhood, and then your community, and then your town, and then your city or your region, and then your country, and then the world. And, and he said, you know, he, he gave it one time this, this analogy to, you know, why should I, why is it that I care more about a cut on my finger than I did if I saw a report that said a million people had died in China as a result of an earthquake? And he said that over time, however, as a result of information, education, and our ability to communicate with each other, we would understand the need to help people in other countries. And, and so his circle of um, sympathy extended right across uh, the world. 
And over time, he believed that the advances in our moral sophistication, as well as in information, communication, and education, would make, would make a huge difference. And I think that's really what we should be thinking about. Can we build a circle of empathy uh, where we understand that the loyalties you owe to your family will always be greater than the loyalties you owe to strangers, but you do understand there's a connection between what's happening to strangers and what's happening to you. And it's in your interest to help people that you may never meet, may never see, may never, uh, they may never know that you help them at all, but it's in your interest to do so. Okay. I think I'm coming to the last question, uh, which comes from Nathan Brennan, who is an MSc student in the Department of International History at LSE. And he asks, what role do educational institutions like LSE have in building international cooperation? Can knowledge production bring people together? Does a 21st century republic of letters exist? And would it even be helpful if it did? I think, I think universities cooperate across the world, which is what the LSE uh, does and what you've uh, pioneered in many different instances is really a good thing. I think also, you know, I, I end the book by talking about hope. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's, you know, when I talk about the qualities of uh, leadership, yet you've got to have a vision, you've got to be able to communicate it, you've got to be able to bring people on board, obviously, but it's got to be hopeful. It's got to be about hope. And, and I do use the example of Martin Luther King uh, speaking in America in the civil rights marches in the 1960s. And he was giving this uh, speech, which is now seen as his most famous speech in Washington in, in, in the march. Uh, and it wasn't going down very well. He had written a very technical speech that was about the issues about civil rights and everything else. But it didn't seem to give people hope. And what suddenly one of his uh, colleagues uh, said to him, Martin, Martin, tell them about the dream. Tell them about the dream. And suddenly Martin's speech changed. And he, a previous speech that he'd used about, you know, I have a dream, I have a dream, I have a dream, suddenly became the, uh, the, the, the thing that people remembered from that, from that speech because he gave people hope. Now, I think any university... Any uh, someone working as a student, and I've been a student, I've been a postgraduate, I've been a lecturer in, in universities, universities can convey this idea of hope that things can improve, that science can make things better, that can, technology can be applied, that the more we are in contact with each other, the better we can understand each other, that cultures uh, can actually change over time, that uh, people are not fixed on particular identities, but can actually... Uh, be part of a community that is as wide as the whole world. Now, I think universities convey that as long as universities have the freedom to operate, which, of course, is an issue in Hungary and in China and other countries, which has got to be continuously uh, addressed. But universities can actually make that difference. And I think conveying this message that the world can change, that hope um, uh, can, can actually be part uh, of, of the way we change things, and that there is a vision of the future that can actually be better than what we've got today. I think that's what people want coming out of this pandemic. And I think uh, universities around the world and, you know, global universities cooperating more, I think, is, is one way that we can build a far stronger future. And I know that's very much part of your plans for the, for the LSE. But equally, I think every university has got a part to play. And it starts with the students making contact with students in other countries, uh, as, we, as we do on, on the social media. Uh, and it, it means that you have uh, transfers. I mean, one of the things I'm trying to get up and running at the moment as the UN Special Envoy is a, as a refugee scholarship, because there are millions of refugees who are being denied education at the moment. And if we could find a way, you know, you've got the Fulbright, you've got the Kennedy, you've got the Schwarzman, you've got all these scholarships to get you to China, America, Britain, so on and so forth. We haven't got a scholarship for refugees that is an internationally recognized scholarship that people have 
contributed to in a big enough number. And although universities are doing great things, we could do a lot more. And I think this is one way that we could play a part in creating a better world. Right. I think also, you know, I've come, I've come to think that people encountering difference on a personal level and meeting people who are different than themselves in any way from a different country, from a different social background, all of that enhances empathy, going back to your circles of empathy. Uh, and that must be part of the solution to growing global cooperation. I agree. Thank you for the chance to speak to you today. And uh, I hope I hope we've put a case uh, for dealing with some of the global problems, but that goes side by side, if I may say, with your book, uh, Dealing with the Future Social Fund. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Gordon Brown, thank you so much. I highly recommend the book. Let me just see if I can get it to show properly. Uh, it's showing on the screen now, Seven Ways to Change the World. It'll make you feel hopeful, but also in a very practical way and uh, and uh, remind you what, what good political leadership looks like. Um, thank you so much for writing the book. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to the audience for wonderful questions. And there are links to buy the book uh, in the chat. And uh, I very much hope, uh, hope you do that. Gordon, any final word from you before we close? No, I, I just want to thank the LSE for, for keeping the vision of a better society open. You know, I've studied history, so I've looked at the history of the LSE right from its beginnings uh, with Sydney and Beatrice Webb, the Poor Law Commission, then the Beverage Report came in part out of the LSE in the 1940s. I think you're ready for a, a, another uh, a force for change. And, and I, do, I do believe that there are many good people around the world who feel very worried uh, that although we talk about building back better, there is a danger we slip back into the old ways and don't make the difference we want to make. So I hope people can come together to do so. And I think the starting point is probably dealing with this question of vaccination at the G20 in October. So we've got three months, I think, to sort this out. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Thank you again. Thank you to everyone for joining us today. Goodbye.